Greetings, my fellow Jamaicans. What is going on? Welcome back to another episode of the Maham Camp Podcast, a fortnightly philosophy and lifestyle podcast, unpacking guests, philosophies and stories for your personal growth and development. This interview is one that I've been so excited about. Uh, I greatly, greatly admire uh, Dr. Anna Lemke and her work on dopamine and addiction. Uh, she's previously been on the Joe Rogan podcast on Andrew Huberman. She is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, and the New York Times bestselling author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, addiction, uh, pleasure, pain, balance, you know, what is an addiction, how to identify them, strategies for dealing with addiction, and then kind of zooming out a little bit onto the broader cultural, technological, spiritual changes that are going on in our society that seem to be making addiction worse. And, you know, what can be done about them, what we can do as individuals and in the larger cultural sphere. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. There's no doubt about it. This is an absolute barn burner as far as I'm concerned. Um, and there's plenty more valuable content coming. So subscribe on Spotify. I've also included the link to Dr. Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, which I would highly recommend for every individual in the 21st century to read, basically. These are really essential things to know. So without further ado, here's the interview. Bo. So, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lamka. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I mean, thank you for joining us and thank you for your work. I mean, I've been recommending all week to basically everybody I know, Dopamine Nation, and even just to watch you on podcasts and speaking because it's just like the problem as far as I'm concerned. I do, um, I'm doing PhD work at the moment in the ethics of social media companies monetizing attention. And something that just comes up is dopamine and addiction, like again and again. I wonder when for you was it, because you obviously started out before as an addiction specialist, was there a time for you that this became like a global problem or like that you saw, okay, there's this like, this is getting bigger almost. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my recognition of the tentacle hooks of these digital drugs really came with my mm. own addiction to romance novels that w was essentially created mm. by the Kindle, right? I mean, this was a book mm. genre I, I sort of discovered midlife. I've always been a reader, but it was this wonderful escape yep. at a particular point in my life. But I really don't think it would have mm. gotten out of control the way it did had it not been for the fact mm. that the Kindle was invented and I got one, you know, within five years of it coming out. And that was really the conduit. All of a sudden, when these books were available digitally, I didn't have to wait between finishing one and starting the next one. I could scroll and search for an endless quantity and variety of books. That's when it really, I think, you know, in retrospect, dawned on me that, oh my gosh, 
Like we are all going to be vulnerable to this problem um, because really I'm not somebody who prior had had problems with addiction. I mean, I've had other problems, but I hadn't had that problem. And I really thought I was immune to that problem. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh no, th this is, I can also, um, you know, go down this rabbit hole. And of course that was, that was almost 15, 10, 15 years ago. Since then it's exploded even more and mm -hmm. I'm facing, you know, the same problems everybody else is with watching a TikTok dance video and then finding myself four hours later still watching TikTok and be like, what happened? Te teleporting through time. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a teleporting. Actually, it's a, yeah. Good word. Good word. <laughs> yeah, I actually just bought today a K-safe. I don't know if you know them for basically a kitchen safe timer oh, yeah. that you put your phone in and it kind of locks it away for a period of time. Um, but do you think the technology has made it that because addiction, I suppose, previously, I don't, I mean, I wasn't there necessarily, but um, you would assume it's, it's made it more mainstream. Are there's going to have to be more of a, like, if we can all get addicted to smartphones, does that open the door to other addictions? I, I thought I'd heard that before, but I wanted to ask you, do we get primed for other addictions by having one addiction? Well, it certainly appears that way. And that's based on the animal science mm -hmm. as well as the kind of clinical observation. So what the animal science shows that is if mm -hmm. you take a rat, for example, and you get it addicted to, let's say, cannabis, and then you mm -hmm. remove cannabis you know, from that rat's environment for a, a long time, let's say a year, which is about a rat lifetime, and then you expose that rat to something like cocaine or any other drug, what you'll see is the rat will get addicted much more quickly to cocaine having already been exposed to and gotten addicted to cannabis, even if that exposure and addiction was a lifetime ago. That all suggests that, that addiction you know, to any drug fundamentally changes the brain and kind of kindles us or primes us for future addiction. So, I, and of course we see this clinically all the time, like people in recovery from alcohol addiction, they haven't had a drink for 10 years, they go to their doctor for low back pain, they get a prescription for an opioid, and within a week they're addicted to opioids. Like there's something, and of course alcohol is mediated through our endogenous opioid system, so there's a lot of correlation between alcohol addiction and opioid addiction. So there's something that happens that kind of drops us back into it potentially very quickly. Whether or not that's true for these digital drugs, I mean, I don't know, but I think we could certainly suspect that that's the case. Yeah, it seems like the research isn't there in a lot of cases, but that's kind of the intuition, particularly with kids and stuff as well. I know that's kind of like a big area of focus, particularly in the social media literature is trying to figure out, you know, the effects of these technologies on people who are developing at a young age and how it kind of shapes their, I suppose, dopamine and salience and kind of their personality, I suppose, as it goes on. But yeah, that's yeah. probably a different topic, just not to jump off there. No, but, no. I mean, um, I think, I mean, I think those are related, right? Like, I mean, if you, it's very clear and we, we have science on this, that if you practice the piano every day for half an hour from age of five to the age of 20, like your brain is going to be different from somebody who hasn't done that. So the question is that what, you know, what aspect of this is just simply adaptation to the modern world and learning, right? And what piece of this for young people's minds is just sort of, you know, simple learning and adaptation and potentially uh, normal and good. And, and what piece of it 
is this piece that's really hooked into this like dopamine reward seeking, which is, you know, ultimately really not good if we're looking for dopamine for its own sake, not as a vehicle for learning or some other adaptive behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a cheap substitute. And especially, I suppose, you pointed out in the book when it's mixed with kind of gamification and these social impulses and that that's what kind of ropes people in a lot, particularly with social media for kids, is that, you know, all your friends are on it, your social status is on it, there's endless games. So it's kind of a whole, you know, sticky web. But I, not so much to focus on the problem, but more the solution. I think, you know, what you talk about with like the, the pain pleasure balance. I wonder if you could give people a little bit of that just because I think that that should be written everywhere now. It should just be like it for people to understand that might give them a shot in you yeah. know, this complex environment. Yeah, kind of aha moment, right? Like if we if we understood what was actually happening in mm. our brains, we could it's a filter through which to observe our own experiences and then actually have agency and take action. Mm. That's my hope exactly. So, so basically, the bottom line is that pain and, pain and pleasure are processed in the same parts of the brain. That's a new discovery in neuroscience and very interesting, right? Kind of paradoxical in and of itself. And pain and pleasure work like opposite sides of a, of a balance. Imagine that there's a beam on a central fulcrum. And the way that pain and pleasure are processed is that when we experience pleasure, our balance tips one way. And when we experience pain, it tips the opposite way. And the overarching rule governing this balance is that it wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call preserving homeostasis. And our brains will work very hard to preserve or get back to homeostasis after any deviation from neutrality. So when we do, when we do something that's highly pleasurable or reinforcing, you know, whatever it happens to be, it might be different for you than it is for me, we release dopamine, the reward neurotransmitter, in a special circuit of the brain called the reward pathway, consisting of the nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area, and the prefrontal cortex. And our balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than our brains will work to restore a level balance, and our brains do that first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. Now, I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again but they like it on the balance, so they stay on wee until they're tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and then they get off, and then we go back to a level balance. And the reason that's really fundamental to understand is that for every pleasure, we pay a neurophysiological price, right? It's not for free. And the bigger the pleasure, the bigger the price we pay. And it's stressful on the body to have to work to restore homeostasis. Furthermore, the second rule of the balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing pleasurable stimulus, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter and the after response gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins once created, even when they're off of the balance, never go away. They're waiting in the wings to hop on again. And with repeated exposure, they multiply and they get stronger. So soon we end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill the whole room, and they're camped out there. They're not going anywhere soon. And this is the addicted brain, right? We're walking around with a balance chronically tilted to the side of pain, which means we need more and more of our drug to get the same effect. We need our drug not to get high now, but just to restore equilibrium and feel normal. And importantly, when we're not using 
We're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. So when people understand that, they're able actually to mindfully self-observe how when they're watching one YouTube video after another, it starts to lose its appeal, right? These are the gremlins accumulating on the pain side of balance. And yet we can't stop ourselves. Why not? Because if we were to stop ourselves, that balance would slam to the side of pain and we would experience dopamine freefall, which is incredibly uncomfortable and which nobody wants. Hence the impulse and the urge to click on the next video and the next video and the next video in order to you know, try to maintain some semblance of equilibrium, but it's a losing battle. The more we press on the pleasure side, the more those gremlins accumulate on the pain side. And eventually, again, we just end up having to either, you know, watch ourselves, watch YouTube videos to death or somehow give up and then go into this dopamine deficit state. And again, if we repeat that day after day, we just end up like looking like we're clinically depressed, right? Because we've got, we've changed our hedonic set Mm, and yeah, and how much, I mean, because there's so much, such a proliferation of kind of anxiety and depression and mental health symptoms in young people with perfectly normal lives that don't seem to be experiencing, you know, anything else that's going on that would be extreme. And it was something I wanted to ask about as well, which is the kind of, I mean, trauma, which is a big topic, um, but that I think could be kind of a smokescreen for these other issues. I mean, if you were a young person and had, you know, were addicted to video games or pornography or whatever it is and that kind of you end up in that painful pleasure pain state and um, that could so easily be mistaken you know how and in your experience like do you think there's a lot of people that are there is that you know a common affliction yeah so i think the really important point here is that addiction is its own primary progressive disease People are always looking for the reason why they're addicted. And there are many different doorways into addiction and certainly trauma can be one of them, but you can have the perfect life and still get addicted because it's the physiology that's driving the compulsive overuse that traps us in that place where we're getting sucked into that black hole and we can't get out again. I also think that there's some potential danger here in always looking for a reason for why we're addicted instead of just acknowledging that addiction is its own disease, that sometimes then people will go like searching for trauma, even when trauma doesn't exist. And patients and providers, mental health care providers, you know, who have been trained to look for trauma will sometimes collude in a narrative around trauma that's not actually accurate or true. So I think that that can be really potentially um, destructive and like one of the unintended consequences of, you know, which is initially a good thing, which is like, well, let's process the trauma. Um, you know, other doorways into addiction are co-occurring mental illness, um, you know, inherited biological predisposition for addiction, unemployment, poverty. Those are all risk factors as well. But one of the biggest risk factors for addiction, which people hardly ever talk about, is simple access. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are easy to get, you're more likely to try them, more likely to get addicted. If you live in a world where you can go to your doctor and get opioids written and Xanax written easily, or you you know you have digital drugs at the touch of your fingertips, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted. And you don't need another reason. Yeah, exactly. And the kind of the that it's so accessible through the technology, but also that we have kind of maybe the time to do it now also and the 
the space to actually get addicted to it. Um, I thought there were some really fantastic, like I, I saw in one of your recent interviews with uh, Rangan Chatterley, Dr. Sorry, Rangan, um, talking about the philosophy of your work behind it that I found so interesting in terms of the, you know, you mentioned Aldous Huxley in the book and he talks about how a society based on happiness is necessarily going to become addicted because life is pain and suffering. Um, and so, I mean, how do we, how do you endure the, is it just like you just have to kind of, for a person maybe who's getting off the pleasure wheel and trying to face into the, the deficit, um, how would you encourage them to do that, I suppose? Because it's quite a big change if you've been there for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the first is to sort of like start with sort of a collective empathy for all of us that we're living mm -hmm. in this drugified world, that almost everything has become drugified sure. from human connection to eating food to socializing mm -hmm. to our work has become drugified. Um, so, you know, we, we, we live in this consumerist, um, compulsive, you know, overconsumptive kind of a world where in order to really be free in a world like this, we have to actually step back from it and insulate ourselves from all of the forces that are conspiring uh, to get us addicted. Um, and then we have to, with intention, you know, uh, anticipate all of these uh, titillations and then actually create barriers between ourselves and these constantly, you know, uh, these constant invitations and temptations and, and also reconceptualize pain, right? Like instead of seeing pain as the enemy, begin to see certain types of pain as our friend and to even invite certain types of pain into our lives. Because as I talk about this balance and the gremlins are agnostic to where they jump on the balance. If we start by pressing on the pleasure side, they will happily hop on the pain side. But if we actually do something that's painful intentionally, they'll happily hop on the pleasure side and reset our you know, hedonic pathways to the side of joy. So it's about kind of restructuring our lives to avoid intoxicants or at least uh, at least avoid them, you know, mm -hmm. very infrequent use with frequent use and avoid uh, using them in large amounts. So we want to use them infrequently and in extreme moderation. And then intentionally kind of seeking out and doing things that are hard uh, as a way to change our physiology. Yeah, there's a lot in there, and particularly the kind of like self-binding strategies that you talk about. I mean, how much can willpower really be relied on in these situations? Like, should a person, I know you used the example of Odysseus in the book, you know, tying himself to the mast to stay away from the sirens. I mean, is that really, you know, the best way? I mean, that's what I'm doing with this K-safe, trying to just put the phone in it, because right. not particularly good at, like, if it's there, you know, it's in my hand, and... I'm going to end up looking at it. So I wonder your thoughts on willpower in that situation. Yeah. So, I mean, most people have heard by now some, some adage to the effect that willpower is not an infinite resource, you know, that we wake up with a certain amount of willpower and it actually wanes through the course of the day. And I'm sure we've all experienced that, you know, wake up saying, I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. And by 5 or 6 p.m., we're doing X, Y, or Z. So what, you know, what, what Odysseus represents and what you represent with your kitchen safe, which I actually uh, mentioned in the book very briefly, um, is, is yeah. a recognition of the limits of willpower, right? I mean, if Odysseus at, believed in his own willpower, he wouldn't have had his sailors strap him to the mast with rope, right? 
um, he yeah. would have thought, well, I, that's okay. I can resist that, the, you know, the siren's call. But he knew he couldn't. So in anticipation of being in that situation, he had himself tied to the mast. You too. You, you know that probably even though you said to yourself, I don't want to be on my phone after 6 p.m., or between, let's say, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., who knows what your fasting protocol was, you know yourself well enough to know that if it's available to you, you will you will use it. So you put in that kitchen safe, and, of course, that safe works where once you set the timer, I mean, you could take a sledgehammer to the thing. You're not getting back in there. Um, and it's, it's your recognition of the limits of your own willpower. It is actually psychologically fascinating what happens in our brains when we remove the choice? And I, I, I urge anybody to do this, either with a kitchen safe or some other vehicle, where you take your phone and you literally put it in a place where you will not have access to it for a period of time. You will experience the most unbelievable release from mental preoccupation and craving. Because it's the knowledge that we can that ends up occupying a huge amount of our real estate. Whereas when we know we can't, it's like, oh, okay, I'll move on. And it's not the same kind of burden. I actually have a, an anecdote about that. That was I was doing my driver's theory test, and they obviously make you put your phone in kind of a locker so you don't cheat. Um, and it was probably the first time I put my phone in a locker that was like locked by somebody else. And so <laughs> I couldn't get at it for this time. And I, the freedom hit me like a sledgehammer. Yeah. It was crazy. That was part of the thing that inspired me really um, to get the kitchen safe was that that feeling. I was like, wow, I'm actually really like obsessed with this phone. Um, yeah. And it hadn't really occurred to me. Um, yeah, it's, it was, it's yeah, really, really incredible. Yeah, and especially because well, what's happening when you put first put the phone away is you're essentially taking the weight off the pleasure side of the balance, but your gremlins have now accumulated, so now you slam down to pain, so you're in withdrawal. Now, if you wait long enough, those gremlins hop off, you restore homeostasis, and that craving goes away, but it takes some time. So in those initial hours, if, if you don't have access, you know, you're relieved of the burden of the craving. And I try to do a digital Sabbath one day every week, usually on Saturdays. But, you know, I have access, right? And I find in the first 12 hours or so of that Sabbath, it's really hard. Every week it's hard and new because I've accumulated gremlins on the pain side of my own. But, but by the time I get through, like, Saturday afternoon, I feel great. And I'm no longer in that craving state. So, you know, once we get far enough out, we are free. But that initial craving is just overwhelming. Something I really, I, I really like about your advice there is the kind of the realism of it. It's not like idealistic where it's like, oh, we'll be okay, or there'll be, you know, you can do a little bit of this or do it. It's almost like, no, we actually have to, you know, put these things in place because it, it seems to require a lifestyle change. I, I know you talk about a new aestheticism. I wonder if you could right. kind of, you know, explain that a little bit for people. Yeah. So, I mean, aestheticism is this idea of, of you know, intentionally doing things that are painful, like ascetics throughout history are, are typically um, religious prophets of one sort or another. You know, in the Middle Ages, they wore like these hair shirts. Martin Luther supposedly flagellated himself. There are the Sufis. So there's lot, lots of examples of asceticism in religious practice. And that was always, you know, as a form of worship. But I feel like our age requires a new kind of asceticism where we intentionally 
create these barriers between ourselves and these pleasures and do things that are actually intentionally physically painful or hard, things like exercise, ice-cold water baths, or other ascetic practices. Mm -hmm. Sometimes an ascetic practice in this day and age can just be unplugging for a while and sitting in silence. Like, we're so overstimulated, you know, most of us, that just doing that is incredibly anxiety-provoking. But those kinds, of, those kinds of practices, I feel, are really important from a physiological and neuroscience perspective in order to reset our brains. And so that's the kind of thing that I'm promoting. If you do it in the service of some kind of higher meaning or purpose, even better. Like if you do it in the service of, let's say, saving yep. the environment because we're not constantly consuming, you know, we're, we're consuming less, then that can also then have a deeper meaning. Mm. But I feel like we've, we've sort of integrated this false worship of these digital drugs. And um, it feels like transcendence, but it's really a kind of a false god. Mm, yeah, definitely is a false. And seems to be, I mean, that they're multiplying rapidly. I've kind of worked in some like crypto web three stuff and there's just new things every day. Like there's no end to the amount of gadgets that are going to be made to capture our attention and keep us as kind of slaves in that sense. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the voluntary suffering. Um, something that I see in martial arts, I have a black belt in Bajinkan and Jitsu and the philosophy of that was always that pain is good. Like you should yeah. at least try to the idea is to cultivate an immovable spirit. That's the mm, kind of the end nice. goal of it. Um, right. That you should be able to, you know, withstand these things. Um, and that that's actually good for you in a way. Right. Um, this idea that instead of pain being bad, pain is actually a way to build up our resilience, mm. to build up those mental calluses. Yeah. That's exactly right. And yet the cultural narrative now is so different from that, right? Mm. It's this idea that if you're unhappy or you're in pain, you must be sick or there's something wrong with your life or you should go see a doctor or take a pill. Like we really have to reframe pain and think about uh, the way that it informs our lives in these really important and positive ways. And also importantly, how physiologically we are wired to endure pain. And by not experiencing physical pain, we're really confusing our bodies. Um, I think that's a really, a really important piece of it, too. Yeah, and that sometimes pain can be you learning something. Um, like if you're kind of adverse to pain, it's going to be very difficult to go beyond your comfort zone or go to somewhere that you don't. I've been kind of quitting drinking on and off. So I'm doing like this year without drinking to try and like, Great. you know, yeah. I suppose reset that. Um, and it's so like, I never realized cause like I wasn't an alcoholic, but I'd go out every weekend. And that was so part of my routine that, you know, I get the FOMO on a Saturday night. Right. I have to deal with the discomfort of that, you know, bartenders laughing at me when I order non-alcoholic beer. Um, so I got to like, you have to kind of, uh, build the resilience almost to, to undergo it. But if I was just looking for pleasure, what makes me feel good, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. You know, right. I'd still just be drinking pints. Right. Exactly. So that, that you've kind of, you appreciate the value of asceticism, of doing things that are hard, of, of, mm. of abnegation, right? Mm. Of denying yourself these pleasures for the promise of something greater down the road. Um, mm. And I'd be curious to, to know 
what not drinking has brought you in terms of that something greater down the road. But you're, at, you know, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. If we don't have a culture that supports that kind of framing, it won't even occur to us to try it. And yet what we're seeing is that rates of anxiety and depression and suicide are going up all over the world, and they're going up fastest in rich countries where people have access to all of these pleasures. So clearly there's some kind of inverse relationship between all of the wonderful pleasures we have and how we actually feel. And as I talk about in the book, it makes perfect sense from a neurobiology that the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake actually leads to the absence of pleasure. And that just provides such a like a fantastic. Did you? I I know it's a lot in the book. I mean, the philosophy of it. That did you find that that's kind of a research basis almost for a lot of ancient wisdom and a lot of kind of, you know, received wisdom. It. May, I'm a big fan of stoicism, and it reminded me a lot of the stuff of that. That you know, some pleasures are bad. You should discipline your desire. You should try and you know, be modest, be temperate. Don't go too far with things. The whole nothing in excess. Um, and I, I wonder, does it, yeah, does it remind you of any of these systems? Is there any ones that you think, I mean, was that something you were trying to do or is it just a pure coincidence? Yeah. So, I mean, I came to this, what I think is a truism about human nature and about life, um, mm. really through the, my work mm. with patients, not through, cause I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm not trained in formally trained in philosophy. It was really by seeing my patients mm-hmm get into recovery from a severe addiction and seeing how their character and their lives blossomed with with simply eliminating this drug of choice and how they had then access to wisdom that like the average person without addiction doesn't have access to. And and then also my work, you know, with people getting dependent on opioids, people with chronic pain and seeing that their pain actually gets worse over time. And then just generally having this sense in the world that that much of our unhappiness today is because of too muchness. You know, we talk about all of the various forms of trauma, whether it's socioeconomic or relationship trauma, but there's some deep core inside me that thinks that most of our unhappiness is driven by overabundance and by actually the lack of friction and hardship in our lives, that we're not wired for life to be this easy, and that it's really the mismatch between our primitive wiring and the modern world that leaves us all so restless, so anxious, and so miserable. But you're absolutely right. Those types of messages can be found in almost every major religious tradition. If you look back at the ancient Greeks, it's not just the Stoics, it's ironically the Epicureans so we think of the Epicureans yeah, as, you know, mm. the Epicureans, we often today, we conceptualize them as like the, the hedonists. But if you actually read Epicurus, he's all about temperance, right? He's all about moderation. 100%. He's, he's all about certain types of pleasures being pleasures that you should always avoid, right? Because they're the types of pleasures that never bring you round to the kind of pleasure that we all really need and want. Mm, yeah, exactly on that. I was actually reading quite recently a bit about that in terms of they're just li- enjoying the pleasure of existing in the moment, like getting past the discomfort of kind of your normal life and learning to kind of enjoy it without needing to escape into the future or the past or any other kind of imaginary things. 
Yeah, right. And so, what, you know, when I first heard this concept, sort of, and, and like this is Buddhism is rich with this, you know, try to be present in the moment. You know, I was in college and I kept tr- I kept thinking that I was doing it wrong because I thought if only I could be fully present in the moment, I would like feel this oneness and nirvana and this happiness. And I'm like, I, I can't I don't feel that. So I'm not doing it right. Anyway, it took me into my 40s to realize, no, when we're truly present in the moment, that means we're we're like unhappy. You know, that that being present is like it's like going, wow, the, the, this is all there is. Like, really? Yeah. I have to sit with this uh, this feeling like this is ew. you know, it, and then not letting ourselves distract ourselves from that moment. That's, I think, really the key, because otherwise, when you hear this kind of like be present in the moment, I know I reacted to this by like, oh, if I could only do that. You know, it's also kind of like the love yourself, be present in the moment. Like, I must not be able to do those things. Yeah. But the truth is, when we're really present in the moment, we're acknowledging that our immediate presence is kind of lacking, right? It, we're perpetually dissatisfied. And then when yeah, we really realize, yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you. When we, I just would say, when we really realize that, paradoxically, there's a release from that, right? We kind of transcend that feeling. Yeah, and it would require, I mean, the technology and everything just seems to take us so far away from that. It's always kind of geared towards the the dramatic and the fantastic. And I know something you said that stuck out to me so much. I don't know if it was in the book or if it was in one of your interviews, but that with all addicts, there's a, a desire for a super normal life. And I know right. in myself, as a millennial, I was stricken with that curse big time. And um, that we just, the, it, I don't know, the Disney version of life has right. been so appealing. So um, I think a lot of people are struggling with that. And, you know, we need thinkers like yourself you know, who can come along and say, look, there's another way. Um, and that's what I really appreciated about it. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, because I, I think that's that's right, this idea that, you know, that people with addiction have to really, once they get into recovery, have to really settle with, which is like, wow, when I was using, there was a heck of a lot of drama in my life, which on the one hand, I hated but on the other hand, it certainly made life exciting, right? And it, like getting out of one problem or another at least gave me some sense of reason and purpose, even though it was horrific, right? And then they get into recovery and it's like, wow, each day is kind of like the day that came before. And it's, you know, and so then what do you do with that? You know, in a way, it's so great not to be embroiled in the trauma. But on the other hand, it's like, well, what? Then you're really confronted with the deep questions like, well, what what is my purpose and why why do I get up every morning and go to school or go to work? Like, what does it all mean? And those are the questions that we need to grapple with, right? And those are legit questions. And, you know, we got to try to find the answers in our own lives, in other people's lives, but we can't just keep running away. Yeah, that was such a good answer. I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> the, that, I really, it's exactly I really what appreciate I your, your I millennial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, about that. Yeah, uh, well, I kind of started doing it, it similar to what you'd said. I kind of got to a point where I wanted to, I almost wanted to, even if I was going to feel bad, I wanted to feel bad rather than to feel fake kind of right. happy or like glossing mm-hmm. over where I was at because I wasn't particularly happy with 
you know, I'd go out drinking, I'd drink too much, I'd do stupid stuff, I'd, you know, that's, again, the drama of it, you know, you don't know where you wake up, or you do crazy shit, and people love it, and they think it's great, but ultimately right. there's kind of an emptiness behind it, um, right. and that's what I found the first time I quit for six months during the pandemic, and I really just, it really hurt in a way, um, mm -hmm. Saturday night, you know, felt really bad, and... Um, it, I really kind of had to come face to face with that feeling um, of, you know, why do I feel so bad about this? What have, what have I been avoiding for about mm. 13 years um, mm -hmm. uh, while hiding in this pressure? And thankfully now, I mean, it, that's still, I, I'm not completely comfortable with it, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. I still struggle with it socially, but um, I have found more of a peace in my life day to day because, mm -hmm. as you said, I mean, bit more boring but um <laughs> kind of an even keel uh -huh. yeah. um, which is what i what i wanted mm -hmm. i suppose mm -hmm. well good yeah. for you for you know having the courage to try to walk a different path i do think the pandemic was great for that for a lot of people too because all of a sudden yes you know you couldn't you Absolutely. couldn't get together socially so it was yeah. like thank yeah. goodness in a way you know yeah. um you know, that's one of the silver linings. It's a crazy sure. side effect of it. Yeah. yeah. But many, many of my patients talked about how it was so much easier to get into recovery and stay in recovery yeah. uh, during sheltering in place, you know, because it wasn't the constant stimulation and temptation. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's right. And then, yeah, then you're left with kind of like the sort of humdrum, you know, like, okay, well, what now? But, you know, you have your faculties, right? I mean, you can now... I mean, you're, you're having, you know, man, you're having like a lot of your own interesting ideas, right? And you can sort of keep your, your ideas can keep you company, right? That's not bad. I mean, podcasting, pretty good substitute for partying, <laughs> I have to say. It works. It does the job, which actually yeah. kind of ties into the desire for non-being, which yeah. was another thing about addiction that you were saying, which is the kind of the obliteration of the self-consciousness, which is something I really struggled with. Like I always had this crazy inner monologue, like just so much thinking and thinking, probably from the hangovers and from, you know, the other stuff. So that was kind of finding healthy ways for non-being. I wonder if there's any ways that you could recommend for people or that you think are, you know, are, is that something that you do? Yeah, right. Well, first of all, let me just say, I also just want to normalize that constant inner monologue. I think, you know, when we subjectively mm. experience that, we, we can like, just feel like, oh, God, why won't my brain shut up? But you know what? Everybody has that. Mm. Pretty much everybody has that. And yeah, maybe the hang your hangovers made it worse. But that's being human. The brain is an organ that never stops, just like our heart never stops beating. So, of course, you know, those constant ruminations, like, it's nice to get a break from that. And we get a break when we're sleeping, but, you know, so then you have insomnia, you don't sleep well. So this, you know, addiction is, is, is oftentimes driven by this desire for escape. But we can find that escape in other much healthier, more adaptive ways. And what I recommend in the book and what I believe works is instead of trying to run away uh, you know, by distracting ourselves with YouTube or video games or alcohol or cannabis or whatever it is, we instead turn and immerse ourselves deeply. And I, for example, I get that from my work. So seeing patients, like I don't even exist when I'm seeing patients. I'm so immersed in their lives, right? 
Um, but like this podcast is an example, right? You and I are really focused on each other and the ideas that we're both interested in, that we're talking about. And that's, that's nice, right? Because it's not, it's not as if we're having a fake conversation about something that we don't really care about, which is burdensome. You and I are having a conversation, presumably, about something that we both are interested in and really care and think a lot about anyway, Maybe. right? Yeah. And that's where psychotherapy can be a wonderful release because people get to finally talk about like all of the ruminations that pop up in their heads that they don't normally get to talk about in their everyday lives. So the trick is finding a way to talk about that in your everyday life, right? Like developing and cultivating intimate friendships where you can tell people the crazy stuff that comes up in your head and know you're not going to be judged or spurned, right? That instead there will be this comfortable, trusting exchange that fosters deep intimacy, that releases dopamine, you know, so then you have a healthy source of dopamine. Again, I think pressing on the pain side is a nice way also, kind of an immersive um, entry into our bodies, right? If you're doing hard, hard exercise or getting in an ice cold water bath, you trust me, not thinking about anything else, but like the pain in that moment, right? So these kinds of immersive strategies, sometimes people talk about flow, um, you know, getting into that immersive state. Yeah. Yeah, flow was exactly the word I was thinking about. I mean, I used to get in a flow state in the pub, drinking pints, and then replacing it with other kind of, like the podcast, like martial arts, right. like, you know, running, conversations. Um, and I kind of realized as well that the big attraction of the drinking and going out and stuff was the conversations for me with people. Like that was yeah. a big meaning making thing. I mean, and sometimes you have to stay up till four to have those conversations, but um, <laughs> bringing that into my life in, in other ways yeah. allowed me to do it without the negative consequences. Right. And what I often talk to about patients is part of why psychotherapy works is also part of why podcasts work. Because we come to this interaction with clearly defined roles and the interaction is bounded and so therefore it's safe, right? We kind of know, you know your role, I know my role. We know kind of the, the, the boundaries of discretion and confidentiality. And what happens in social situations is that all has sort of, there are no rules. And that's in fact very anxiety provoking. So part of what people do is get intoxicated so they can tolerate the anxiety of that unbounded interaction so they can have an interaction. But really, if there are ways we could bind those interactions so that we could get to that deeper conversational connection piece without having to be intoxicated, it's better. Mm. Yeah, and it's in a way that it's more genuine also, I think, that the type of conversation that you have sometimes is a bit, you know, it might feel good, but then the next day you might wake up and think, what was I even talking about? Why did I <laughs> say all of those things? And right. That was right. absolute nonsense. Right. Right. Um, well, at so, least you have the insight yeah. to realize it day two. Some people don't even, but yeah, like that's, I mean, what happens with intoxicants and with things that release a lot of dopamine is that they make us feel smarter, more creative, more interesting, you know, when in fact we're going blah, 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 but it, it's that weird disconnect, <laughs> it's getting you know, worse. between, <laughs> yeah. right, between what we're actually doing and what we feel like we're doing. For example, I'll have a lot of patients come in and say to me, well, cannabis makes me more creative. I'll say, okay, what have you actually created as a result of cannabis? Zero. 
You know, there's the creation is that not there. Okay. The feeling of being creative is that there. Another big one now with that now is like psychedelics. Oh, I want to have a spiritual experience. Okay. Yeah, I had a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what about your life is more informed by spirituality? Like, because if your life didn't get informed by the spiritual experience, was it really a spiritual experience or was it just a feeling of having a spiritual experience? Yeah, that was something I found with psychedelics. Cause I know a lot of people think, yeah, this is going to be a treatment for the soul and a kind of transformation, but you can have a transcendental experience and then just go back to your job in hospitality and, you know, it's just <laughs> the same thing. Nothing really like, exactly. you know, met God. What, but yeah, and that's what happens happen. to most people, you know, in my experience, that it's, it's, it's the feeling of some kind of transformation, but it doesn't actually translate into a changed life or changed behavior. Yeah. And frankly, without the behaviors, you know, what really happened? I don't know. I'm skeptical. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's sometimes, I guess in your book, you make a great point of that treating drugs with drugs is kind of a risky, you know, path to go down maybe, or that there's externalities there that could be not Costs. adaptive. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we could give, I suppose, for people that are listening, um, some kind of actionable steps, I suppose. You talk about the 30-day fast. You know, what's the procedure if somebody says, I think I'm unhealthily, you know, my relationship to this object of desire isn't good. Um, I need to do something about it. Where would you recommend that they start? Yeah, so the first place I recommend is just kind of thinking through what is that drug or behavior that I have, um, you know, a relationship with that I want to change, right? That thing that once I start, I have difficulty stopping, that thing that leaves me feeling good in the moment, but worse afterwards, that leads me to do things I regret, that interferes with my ability to be the person that I want to be, to pursue the goals I want to pursue. Just even acknowledging that we have something like that in our lives and then being totally honest with ourselves about, okay, well, how often am I using, you know, how much, and preferably sharing that with another human being, I think is important because it's only till we tell somebody else that it really becomes real. Um, but, you know, until we do that, we can be in this state of denial about it. So, and then I, so I have this dopamine acronym in the book, but I, I then I suggest, well, what people that kind of reflect on, well, what, what is my objective for doing that? Like, what is the thing that I like about it for you, for alcohol, it might've been that you know, you got to have these conversations with people. Well, and then you could say, well, then the other point, well, what are the problems with it? Well, the problems were maybe they weren't the deepest conversations or they weren't conversations that lasted to any meaningful intimacy, you know, that continued beyond the intoxicated state. So I think just honest reflection about sort of what we're using mm -hmm. and why it's problematic and yet why we keep doing it anyway. And then really I, I recommend a behavior, um, which is to abstain from that drug or behavior for 30 days. Why 30 days? Because that's usually an amount of time that people can wrap their head around. And it's also usually on average the amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways so that people um, stop, you know, they get out of this cycle of craving and they're able to um, enjoy other more modest rewards. So for example, people who are addicted to pornography and compulsive masturbation, that would include something like no pornography and no orgasms with yourself or others for a month. For people addicted to certain types of food, that might be something like no sugar for a month. People addicted to cannabis, no cannabis for a month, no alcohol for a month. 
Uh, for me, it was romance novels, no romance novels for a month. You know, um, I had to get rid of my Kindle. So then you have to like put those self-finding strategies in place also to make it more possible. We also have medications now that can help people, um, you know, put the pause button between desire and consumption, things like opioid receptor blockers, which help people decrease alcohol cravings. But it's a lot of things like just behavioral stuff, getting the drug out of the house, maybe not socializing with the people who use, um, you know, using time as a barrier, which is just like the 30 days as a form of chronological self-finding, stuff like that. And then after, if people are able to do it after that, kind of like doing an honest assessment, do I feel better? What's better? What's worse? And then what do I want to do going forward? That's really the key also. Once you reset reward pathways, it's not like you're done. Then, then really the work begins of like, okay, am I going to reintegrate this into my life? Most people want to go back to using, but they want to use differently. You know, they want to use less. They only want to use in this situation, not that situation. They want, don't want to use as often and what have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of reevaluate after in light of things. And also, I suppose, as you pointed out, those big questions of who am I? What am I going to do? Who do I want to be? For me, that was really the key question. I think, who who do I want to be? Because like, I wanted to be like Charles Bukowski or like Hunter S. Thompson or something for a while, and it turned <laughs> out that was a very bad idea. Um, and when I kind of changed that and decided I wanted to be a different kind of person, that kind of gave me the impetus to make those changes. Yeah. You know, it took away. So, I something I recommend a lot, I suppose, for myself and others is you know to think about who you want to be, the type of person. Um, that the future self is going to be sets the parameters for now. Um, so yeah, I love topic. it. I love it because um, really it is. Mm. And, and let me just say, you can't really make those decisions of who you want to be mm. when you're chasing dopamine and caught in the addiction cycle. Because what happens is then our, our nucleus accumbens and our reward pathways, our dopamine releasing centers are not properly connected to the prefrontal cortex. And our prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain that allows us to make plans for the future and delay gratification. Yeah. So you really have to wait until you have that clear sensorium and you've reconnected your prefrontal cortex to your reward pathways to be able to say with any kind of, you know, informed, accurate data, what it is you want to be doing with your future self. But then I think you're absolutely right. That kind of longer narrative of looking at yourself through time and saying, okay, do I really want to spend six hours a day playing video games? Like how many, how many hours of that, how many hours of video games is that in, in a month or, or in, a, in a year or, or in 10 years? Will I have spent, you know, half of my waking hours playing video games? Is that really, you know, the legacy that I want to leave? And when I think about or talk about legacy, like I'm not talking about like aspiring to be either Mother Teresa or Mark Zuckerberg, not to say that those are, you know, polar opposites, but it's, it's not about, yeah, it's not about that. It's, it's really just like, hey, you know, how is any of us going to find meaning and purpose so that in the time that we have, we can look back with not as many regrets and feel like a little bit like, okay, you know, I, I, I did, I did a little good thing there. Yeah, a life that you can be proud of. And for me, definitely involved giving up those crutches that were getting in the way of that. Um, it's so interesting what you're saying there. Just self-awareness, I think, for me was very much, it was limiting it. Um, and so I had to kind of take a step away from that lifestyle, which had 
been great for me at certain points and introduced me to people and you know had a lot of fun but it was getting in the way of this next kind of development of what was going on right and you know yeah and it's really interesting because there are neuroimaging studies that show that when we engage in short-term rewards the part of our brain that lights up is this reward pathway the limbic brain our kind of lower you know lower midbrain emotion lizard brain Whereas when we're engaging in activities that have to do with delayed gratification or future rewards, the part of our brain that lights up is the prefrontal cortex or our higher gray matter areas. So it really does go to show that, you know, when we're living, when we're constantly consuming these short-term rewards, we're basically strengthening and activating our lizard brain, right? Which, I mean, we're not lizards, right? (laughs) So... You know, we don't want to live yeah. at that level. Like we've got all these, this, you know, all these layers of gray matter that we, we really mm-hmm. should be engaging in uh, when, you know, when we're sort of deciding what to do with our time and our lives. I was going to say their lizards do live in the moment, but I don't know if that's exactly <laughs> that's where true. we want That's to. true. They <laughs> probably do. The we should. <laughs> I'm hot. I'm cold. Um, thank I'm you hot. so much, Anna. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> yeah, this just is... running. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. But I, I definitely thank you so much for your work. It's a massive inspiration. I'll keep just, you know, shouting it from the hilltops for people to read the book, watch oh, your podcast. Well, thank you. This was re- it was really fun, fun so talking to you. Really fun talking to you. And I, I love getting the millennial perspective. And actually talking to you gives me hope for all millennials. I know if I, if I can get out of my quarter life crisis, everybody can. <laughs> it can be done. There's hope. exactly thank you so much i hope you enjoyed that interview uh if i could ask you one favor click that follow button on spotify um it helps with the algorithm and it helps you to stay informed with all the valuable content that's coming as we continue to learn these things that i think are worth learning and trying to share as best i can the insights that i've gathered along the way um to help people develop themselves uh god knows we all need it and there's enough bullshit out there that I don't want to contribute more to it. So it shall remain valuable as it can be. Um, And I hope it is valuable for you. Get in touch, message me. You know, if there's something that you're interested in, something that you'd like to see more of, you can get me on the Instagram at man underscore McCann. Take care. Peace.